This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Dr. Asa Hershoff about his development of what he calls the five-element energy healing and elemental psychology system. This system posits a three-self model of the human being, spirit, essence, and persona, in which the essence has five modes of being corresponding to the five traditional elements, ruler, creator, lover, warrior, and guru. These modes are in turn reflected in the persona as expressions of empowerment, loss, and shadow. One therapeutic aim of this system is to support practitioners in moving from a persona-centered life to an essence-centered life. Asa Hershoff has practiced mind-body medicine and Vajrayana concurrently for 40 years, completing the traditional Tibetan three-year meditation retreat under the auspices of Kalu Rinpoche. He was later ordained as a lay lama. A pioneer in the Canadian holistic health movement, he is founder of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1978 and currently author of three books on holistic health. Asa has developed elemental psychology as an integration of Vajrayana humanistic psychology, bioenergy medicine, and a pan-global perspective on the five elements. This transformative methodology of self-healing, therapy, and spiritual growth is represented in his many current books, You, True and False, and The Five Ways of Wisdom. Asa Hershoff, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Wonderful to be here. Well, great to have you, and um, I'm excited to hear about your career and your work. But we begin, I will begin, because this is our first conversation on the show with you, with our uh, now standard first question, which is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth. And in so doing, um, point to or tell us about uh, any particular experience or experiences that looking back, you could say were harbingers of the direction that your life and work would take that we'll be discussing later. You know, no one's ever asked me that question. I've, I've never asked myself that question. So it is interesting. Um, going way back, I would say, you know, I, I'm one of those people who doesn't have a vast memory of their childhood, just a few spots that stand out. And, of course, I believe that's because those were moments of heightened awareness or con reconnection to some ground awareness rather than just the hoi polloi memories of different silly incidents. So I, two, two connected incidences. One was... I remember having a lucid dream as a child, in other words, being aware that I was actually in a dream, and thinking, oh, I can take these objects. I was probably seven years old, something like that. Why can't I take these objects and bring them back into waking with me? I know this mm -hmm. is a dream. This is a beautiful, whatever it was, piece of gold. Uh, and when I woke up and it wasn't there, I was a little disappointed in the nature of reality. And, I, you know, it was kind of an object lesson that... Reality is not quite as fluid as I had hoped. 
And another incident, similar, odd incident, I remember as a very young child, probably five or six, throwing a little toy up in the air, and it never came down. Uh, I believe in my foggy memory, it might have come down a few days later. But I remember the fact that I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere in the vicinity. I threw it straight up. So that was um, another kind of shattering of the glass ceiling, literally, of my sense of reality that maybe there's a more fluid dimension than the solid, uh, the solid objects and experiences we're normally familiar with. So I, I think those things were portents of, of that. But if we fast forward, the real uh, seminal awakenings for me uh, were in around 18 years of age. You know, the hippie, I was the hippie generation in the 60s. And uh, <clears throat> there, there wasn't the same marketplaces today. There wasn't an internet. There wasn't cell phones and so on. But I did come across certain what you could call sacred teachings that profoundly altered my road forward, and particularly a book called In Search of the Miraculous uh, about G.I. Gurdjieff, and that changed my entire perception of, of the world and reality, and it, uh, it informed my entire way forward, I would say. But obviously, inherently, I was born with a questing mind, and if I show you later on my diagram of the human psyche, uh, I'm strongly influenced by this particular, you know, if we said we had five motivations in life, which I believe we do, the guru motivation, the seeking of wisdom, the seeking of uh, understanding the basic matrix of our experience, what's going on in us and around us, uh, that came in with me. That's part of my constitution, whether that's past life or uh, whatever it is, that's something that, that came with me. So I was in spite of my Jewish uh, upbringing, uh, conservative Jewish, non-religious non Jewish, Toronto boy, uh, I was always seeking for deeper meaning outside the very, obviously very shallow uh, goings-on of my upbringing in a suburban Toronto. So, yeah, I, I would say those are the seminal points in my life. Thank you. And then, of course, I... <clears throat> The real shift began to happen when I began to meet uh, what I would call masters, adepts, enlightened beings, went out of my way to seek these people out. And being an extremely uh, nonconformist, radical type of cantankerous human being, I did not want to go into orthodoxy, which is probably on a practical level, that's not a good idea. But nonetheless, you can't help yourself sometimes. So... I did not want to go into Orthodox medicine, like a lot of like, you know, Jewish, you're either, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be an accountant, or in the computer realm, as it, as it evolved. But uh, I wanted to go into something alternative. So I sought out healers of an unusual kind, with strange names like chiropractors and homeopaths, and seeking out these, uh, what books we could, we could find, Idri Shah and Sufism and Whenever someone would come to town in Toronto, I would uh, do what I call spiritual window shopping. And uh, seeing what was there, I, I didn't mind being a dilettante because I just wanted to check out what my internal center of gravity, my internal sensibilities told me could be valid, could be true. And I do trust that. And I, I would say that uh, through my many experiences, including especially three-year meditation retreat, I came to really be able to connect with that uh, Mm -hmm. discerning wisdom to be able to trust and to know 
the the true from the false in the sense, or the weak from the chaff. I don't know if it's true or false in some objective sense, but certainly the um, the charlatan from the uh, the sincere and and actual adept. So my life has been involved with learning from such significant beings, and uh, had the good fortune, as they say, to study with the Gurdjieff method, but then got very serious. While I was learning Arabic and Persian so that I could learn more about Sufism, I came across Tibetan Buddhism. And then again, that radically changed my life in a profound way, because even now, but at that time, you could actually meet people who were completely evolved, transformed beings. You could. I, I, the first time I went to India back in 1980, I actually had a list. Okay, here's a list of enlightened guys that uh, I should go and meet, and which is quite extraordinary to think that you could go and knock on their door. But uh, fortunately, the first door I marked, uh, knocked on was uh, near Darjeeling, a uh, fellow by the name of Kala Rinpoche, very uh, high meditation master in the Kaju tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And so the minute I met, met him, I tore up my list, and uh, the, rest, the rest is history. And again, fortunately or unfortunately, it was clear from day one that if you're going to be his student and get into the inner sanctum of his teachings, the requisite training was a three-year, three-month meditation retreat, which I resisted for six years. I managed to, <laughs> to resist that long, and then one way or another, uh, there it was, a very, very intensive uh, period of time. And of course, as one uh, another great teacher uh, said to me, oh, you go three-year retreat, so much suffering, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I consider that to be kind of a karmic detox, mm -hmm. just sitting on, in your cushion by yourself with no distractions and no media and no books and no nothing except your, you know, you have your, your spiritual practices and your rituals to do. Um, but just sitting with your own mind for that long is quite a quite an experience. Uh, so that that again altered me, and uh, when I jumped out of there, I had already uh, formulated the structures which have guided me ever since, what I call, among other things, elemental psychology. Sorry to all psychologists, uh, I'm also using that name, uh, because it does borrow pieces from psychology, but it borrows, fortunately, since I started as an outsider, and I'm still an outsider, I was able to borrow from all the different traditions that have no place in psychology. Uh, so uh, religion, spirituality, shamanism, mystical experience, the subjective, right. uh, the, the idea of the body as a bioenergetic uh, mechanism uh, with transformative possibilities, which is inherent in, you know, Qigong and Tibetan Buddhism and the Gurdjieffian system, but not part of psychology, for sure. You're not talking about bioenergy moving around. But how can you have a psychology? How can you change the mind? How can you change yourself, even psychologically, in terms of depression, anxiety, or any other way, unless you're working with energy? So that became a... Uh, as I went to chiropractic school and naturopathic and became a practitioner and began to put these things into practice, put energy healing into practice, then slowly that began to integrate with all of the other uh, information. Actually, when I went to three-year retreat, I'd already been in practice for, for some time. Yeah, that's what I was, I, I, yeah. I was interested in, just trying to understand the, the timeline or the causality in terms of when you went to India in 1980 and uh, ended up meeting Kalo Rinpoche, 
But, but well, what, had, again, what had you been doing before that, yeah, basically? That's right. Uh, the, the other, I didn't even mention, one of the greatest events of my life, a seminal event in my life, was meeting a, a, you know, when I was jumping around as a hippie, I had a very good friend who was a musician and so on, and he said, hey, do you want to meet a real master? I said, yeah, this is like 1974, something like that. I said, yeah, I want to meet a real master. Sure, that's, that's what I'm all about. Where's the real master? And so he sends me this guy in this office, and as I said, I go to this little, little basement of a house in the west end of Toronto, and there's a little sign on the door. It's Cairo, what's a chiropractic? I had never heard this funny word. Um, walked in there, and there's this roly-poly man smoking a cigarette, Drinking a cup of coffee with a Snickers bar and chocolate bar on on the on the table, I said, "Okay, is this guy going to introduce me to the master?" <laughs> but once he got me in the room and lay me down, uh, it was very clear. Actually, he he asked me. I might as well tell you the experience because it'd be entertaining for your your audience. Uh, when he did his little intake, he said, "Have you ever had any surgery?" I said, "Well, I had my tonsils out when I was a kid, you know, and nothing much. You know, I'm good health. I was I." I 19 years old, 20, 20. Um, so then he took me into the table and he lay me down and he ho grabbed my feet and I instantly felt like his body inside my body, kind of merging with my body. And I was not, I would not say I was energy sensitive or trained in any way or, you know, I had not done Qigong yoga, nothing like that. I was a young man uh, with, with less opportunities than now. But I, that was a very tangible experience. I said, wow. And then as he worked on me, I closed my eyes. He was putting his hands over me. I, and, and, oh, yes, the other chief complaint, I said, well, the only problem is, you know, I was constantly going like this. All it was a tick I had. I was always had this tension. I said, well, you know, I got this tension in my shoulder. And every two seconds, I was always going like this with my shoulder. Well, as he lay me down, lay back there, I had the experience of what happened to me at, what was I, maybe four or five years old? which is I had been taken to the doctor's office. I don't know why. I said, no, go to the doctor's office, lay me down on the table. And the next thing I knew, there was a cloth coming down on my face. Formal, uh, not formaldehyde. what do you call it? Um, ether? Yeah, ether. Back then they used that kind of ether. <laughs> and then I went, to, <clears throat> I went to get up, you know, to, to run away, and I was strapped down. They had strapped me down, gave me the chloroform. They gave me the chloroform and apparently took my tonsils out. So I did not, you know, uh, however I recovered from that, who knows, you know, I stayed at home and ate, uh, you know, oatmeal and ice cream. Um, but here I was, age 20, much later, and I did not know that this traumatic imprint had affected me in any way. But I re-experienced this. I had never thought about it since, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know that I had the memory. But I re-experienced this horrific feeling, and especially the betrayal that my parents said they didn't say a word. They had allowed this horrible thing to happen. So anyway, I just went through this whole, it was not an emotional experience going through it. I didn't go through some, you know, tears or anything else. Uh, I, I just had that, the visual uh, unfolding. It's like the tape ran, uh, ran backwards and there it was. <clears throat> um, and I got up, I had no tension in my shoulder. And that whole tick I had disappeared. So apparently I, this, struggle had been imprinted in my nervous system to try to escape. And I was still in this fight and flight uh, mechanism was still going on. Hmm. So I was pretty darn impressed with that. <laughs> and I said to 
Dr. John, as we called him, Dr. John Laplante. Of course, he's passed away since. Passed away when I was in my three-year retreat. But um, I said, okay, John, what do I have to do? You know, what, what do I have to follow? You know, it's like, I'm your Shela, I'm your disciple. You tell me whatever it is I'm going to do, go to the ends of the earth. I want to have these capabilities and skills. I want to, I want to be enlightened. He said, uh, he said, whatever I might give you, it'll become just as mechanical as everything else you're doing. So if I give you some technique and methodology, you'll just fall asleep into that particular way of acting. It'll just become another part of your, I would say now, I would call it another part of your persona, of your mechanism, of your false self, of your conditioned self. So that made it clear to me, that was the first lesson that awakening or being awoken can't be done mechanically. And Gurdjieff himself said, what, what you need to wake up is alarm clocks, except after a while, you just sleep through the alarm clock because it's just part of your regular world. So somebody has to keep changing the alarm clocks and keep waking you up. And that is the role of a spiritual master. He's going to keep uh, hitting you between the eyes with that two by four and waking you up in ways that are unexpected, unusual, etc. So uh, we can try to do that ourselves. And that's why I'm normally, we're still not living in normality, normally I'm traveling at least half the year because nothing wakes me up like being in a strange place, strange language, strange situation, unusual people, I can't understand the word they sing, and I, I find that's very comfortable for me because it's out of the ordinary. Everything's out of the ordinary, and uh, and I'm out of my uh, habitual tendencies, my... in, in uh, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, or in Tibetan, they call it bakchak, which means habitual tendency. We have all of these habitual ways of being, and we're mainly, as Laplante said, we're mainly in a robotic type of function. We're in a stimulus response function most of the time, as opposed to what he called responsibility, if you look at that word, the ability to respond consciously. And he had said to me, uh, when I had my first conscious thought, it almost knocked me across my room, across the room. In other words, that a thought that came from his internal being rather than a stimulus response, you know, triggering all the different mechanisms, all the words and all the programs that we have within us. So functioning outside of your programming is, is really part of awakening. Um, but the other thing that happened, fast forwarding, when I came out of my uh, many difficult experiences, it was... Three retreats, is, is, people always say, oh, how wonderful, you're meditating. And by the way, you don't lie, lay down for three years. You have a, a wooden box, something like this, but a higher back, and you don't lie down for three years, except, you know, there's two days I was sick and I did lie down. But uh, generally, you're sitting there. And um, ba basically, it's a hellish experience. Not, the, the, the sit not lying down is not a hellish experience, but all the things that come up from you, from your uh, reviewing your life, or it automatically bubbles up when you when you have nothing outside to distract you. Uh, that can be pretty difficult. But at the end of three-year retreat, uh, one of my big sayings was that I still carry with me. One day it'll be a book. Uh, Enlightenment ain't what it used to be. That's funny, right? Uh, and the The reason for that is because at some point in retreat, one of the epiphanies that I had, one of the satori's or waking up moments was, oh, 
everything I thought about awakening or enlightenment was all my <clears throat> self-generated projection. It was all a fantasy within my mind. It was, you know, it was an idea. But enlightenment is going to be something completely inconceivable, something quite different, something quite new and fresh that I had not cogitated in my mind. So that was when I gave up the idea that I had carried until then. I mean, because I was now I was like 40. Um, I had carried these ideas in my being, in my little brain or whatever, uh, that this is what my goal is, and this is what enlightenment is. And at that point, I dropped that idea. I said, enlightenment, what, what is, what a silly concept. What a, it's a nice carrot on a stick to get you going, but it's kind of meaningless because, uh, as the famous Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa said, who was, a, you know, a, the first guy to really try to bring a Western flavor to those Eastern teachings of, of Tibet, uh, he said, it's a journey without a goal. Uh, you're on the journey, and the journey is the you know, the most important part. And the goal, you'll probably reach a goal, or maybe you won't. Or they call it, in Zen, they call it the gateless gate. If you walk through the gate, you realize there was no gate. So <laughs> you achieved what you were supposed to, but at that point you realize there's no achieving and not achieving. It, it is, you know, there's a state of uh, open dimension. So, so luminosity. Yeah, so I wanted to just kind of, rewind a little bit to you know the the timeline of your your own work and practice so you yes. you met this very impressive chiropractor so did you you actually started to study with him is that correct well i yes i not only no i didn't really that's a funny thing that's a funny apprenticeship uh i decided he's a chiropractor and naturopath that's what i'm going to become and i did i went to chiropractor college and we found it together uh in, he and I and five of us all together, we founded what is now the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in its, whatever, 45th year, going strong. You know, they've got a huge facility and they graduate thousands of, they've graduated probably 10,000 students. We started that. But yes, I became a, a chiropractor and naturopath in order to uh, follow in his footsteps of learning how to heal and so on. But he never, he, he never once sat me down and gave me practices or even uh, a formal teaching. But we hung out together. We played golf together. And the first time I played golf with him, uh, it was overwhelming. I, I think I had to sleep for three days because his, his presence was so overwhelming, so overpowering that, uh, you know, pe people like that or like Keller Rinpoche or the 16th Karmapa, they change you by their presence if you're open to it it's overwhelming i remember one day we were driving in his car and uh he's driving and he says you know at some point i i had developed myself to the point where i could throw a six-foot man across the room just with my glance but i had to learn to calm it down and as he's saying that I'm feeling my body being pressed against the window of the car. I'm like, okay, I'm being crushed here. So uh, I don't know if he was doing that on purpose or just his presence. But yeah, so we didn't have formal teachings. Uh, uh, my my girlfriend, my lady at the time, we played cards together, went up to his cottage, and there was always things said and things done that were teachings, but not in any formal sense. I never got a formal teaching. Here's how you work with energy. Here's how you, no, nothing like that. Um, but 
he had a lot of sayings and you know, I made a little Facebook page for him. And sometimes I remember his sayings and I, I put these little things in there. Um, but I remember one day we were playing cards and he's, I said, John, cause you know, my inquisitive Jewish mind, John, what's the secret of life? I thought, you know, now I'm going to get it. He said, keep breathing. <laughs> You're alive, you know. That's a good answer. So, uh, so yeah, but, you know, it, it was kind of a Zen internship with him. And I, yeah. I said, I'll never leave Toronto, which, sorry, I'll use Torontonians. I never liked Toronto. <laughs> uh, born and raised. But I said, I'll never leave Toronto and while John is alive. And when John passed away during my three-year retreat after, you know, I had basically apprenticed with him for, for 13, 14 years, then I decided to move to California. So... <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. I, well, it does, I, but I, I think the other piece uh, uh, that I'm just trying to just to tie this up before we uh, move on is uh, how the working with Kalo Rinpoche and the Tibetan tradition sort of mm -hmm. uh, wove around this uh, chiropractic and naturopathic uh, practice. Well, I, actually, before you even get there, but I want you to go there, um, was there anything between your experiences with Mr. Lapont and Kalu Rinpoche that had a significant effect on, on the, uh, um, the shape yeah. of your trajectory. Yes, absolutely. You're quite right. You're quite intuitive. Um, at some point, you know, I had been in practice for, I forget how many years, six or seven years, and uh, creating a college, interacting, and uh, homeopathy became, from day one, the, the minute I met Laplante, and the minute he had given me a remedy, I became very curious about these little pills. And these somehow it, it became clear to me, actually through reading a book by Issa Schwaller de Lubowicz, uh, her back, volume one and two, amazing books. Um, it became clear to me that homeopathy was onto something, as stated in her back, that the entire realm of nature is a living symbol. Now, symbol not meaning a representation of, but a manifestation of. The whole of nature is a manifestation of meanings. And this is mind-boggling to me and something that still is, of course, not part of mainstream science or psychology, which is why I, you know, thumb my nose at it because it's primitive. Uh, but becoming aware through homeopathy that every mineral, every plant, every animal, I've got some titles of books here. I was just looking at, uh, you know, snakes in homeopathy, spiders in homeopathy, birds in homeopathy. Every one of those is a remedy. Why? Because they not only contain, they embody, they are the manifestation of a meaning. And so when you see a patient who has some disturbance, there's a meaning behind it. There's a core um, value, self-identity system, and so on, trauma, but it's a meaning. And you look for the homeopathic remedy in nature that matches that meaning. So the whole of the microcosm of nature mirrors the microcosm of a human being, except in nature, it's quite normal for something to be one-sided. You know, a dog is very doggy and a cat is very catty. But when a human being becomes doggy, that's mm -hmm. a fixation. In nature, it's not a fixation because they are a bunch of pieces. But a human being is supposed to encompass them all. So when you see them fixated in that one uh, calcium or phosphorus or a pigeon, whatever it is, 
you give the homeopathic remedy as a mirror image of that archetype and they unfixate. It's, it's a mind-boggling science. I, most homeopaths do not understand how deep homeopathy is. You have to have a kind of a shamanic uh, approach uh, to nature. So anyway, that uh, going forward with that and those meanings and my practice and working with energy and working with people, and I learned to, like Laplante, be able to tune in and sense whatever's going on. And I wouldn't say whatever's going on. I learned to communicate non-verbally so I can tune into someone and get whatever messages are coming through. You know, I, I always say to patients, this is not archaeology. I'm not going to take a pickaxe and look for this trauma or that. I'll just listen. Like you're saying, to, you're, you're expressing things to me by what you wear, uh, by how you look, by how you dress, how you speak, your tone of voice, the words you say, your emotional energy. But there's other messages. So it's learning to listen to the other messages, which are very complex and very powerful, and they're nonverbal. And so I learned to listen to that in people, and I learned to listen to that in nature. So that's a nice skill to have, to understand the what is normally not uh, comprehensible by, by usual means. So I learned all that, but at some point, I felt that I'd reached a dead end. A dead end. I couldn't go any further. I needed some something, some spiritual connection, really. And so I'd done all this window shopping, and one day in my, I had an office in, in Toronto, uh, very nice, and I had I lived upstairs, and I had my office downstairs uh, on, uh, I can't remember the name of the street right now, but so I, I was there one evening, and I was in, uh, kind of in the throes of my existential angst of what do I do next? What is the next direction? What is, what do I go now? And I literally finally broke through into tears and which means I had opened, instead of having intellectual inquiry or emotional engagement, I truly opened up. And I said, please, you know, give me an answer. Now, sometimes that's dangerous because you don't know who answers those kind of messages. I've mm -hmm. seen bad sure. things happen sometimes say, oh, give me a message. And the devil says, oh, I'll come and give you a message. But anyway, <laughs> I was already kind of protected, I think. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I'm really looking so hard. I'm crying, you know, please. And I felt some energy come and descend upon me. It's quite extraordinary because I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not into the new age stuff. I'm kind of very traditional. I'm not into whiz bangs and lights flashing and so on. So when it happens, it's significant for me. Uh, so that happened. Then two days later in my window shopping, uh, there was a big event taking place. They called it a black crown ceremony. It's 1979, 80, uh, that the Karmapa, one of the uh, heads of the main lineages of Tibetan Buddhism was in Toronto giving this ceremony where he puts on this sacred crown. It's supposed to be made of the hair of a thousand or is it a million zikinis. Now, zikini is in Tibetan Buddhism is the uh, embodiment of enlightened wisdom coming through the feminine beingness. You know, the feminine being in Tibetan Buddhism is the container of the wisdom element, the male uh, component, whether you're male or female, is the container of activity, skillful means, acting in the world, compassion. Uh, but the feminine is the wisdom of understanding the nature of things, oneself and, and outside anyway. So I went to the Black Crown Ceremony, and there I was up in, uh, I went up in the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the balcony. The loft, yeah, the balcony. Uh, to watch this thing. And, you know, they, they, they have these Tibetans and they're playing their instruments and they're doing this whole ceremony. And then at some point, they take out this box and out comes this black crown. 
and he puts it on his head. And at that point, they had this, it was in an old church, but they had this fantastic light show. It was red lights and then blue lights and everything turned blue and everything turned green and so on. And then at some point I said, wow, did he do it like a fast chain, put on a mask? Because I saw this, like a pig's face. And I said, wow, this is really a quite a trippy little show. And so at the end of the whole thing, then, then that was over, took the crown off, which is supposed to be, they call this enlightenment through seeing. They say that if you even see this ceremony happening once, you will be saved from going into a lower rebirth and you will definitely be on the path to enlightenment just through the, the power of seeing. There is enlightenment through, that's where they use certain talismans and so on, enlightenment through seeing, through hearing. If you're open to it, it is such a powerful impetus that it could blast you into uh, another uh, level of awareness. So anyway, I said to my friend, I said, that was really a cool light show they had. He said, what light show? There was no lights. Oh, yeah, right. The church, there's no there's no light. I said, yeah, there's no light. Anyway, so I had actually witnessed the five element elemental lights, which, of course, became a seminal part of my life, the driving force of my life, the five elements. But at that time, I had no idea what five elements were. And also the this pig, this main meditational deity of uh, that particular system is a uh, red feminine wisdom being, dancing being, and out of the top of her head comes a uh, squealing boar, a pig. Hmm. So I had actually seen these manifestations, which is you know just an just an incredible blessing. It had nothing to do with my development or awareness or smartness. It's just like wow, that blessing was so powerful. And probably through past life connections, I had some. I had a a hook enough to receive the ring that came to me, you know, hook in the ring. So then I went onto the stage. He said, oh, they're giving refuge, whatever that is. Okay, man, that's cool. Let's do refuge, and which is where you officially become a Buddhist. And they, you know, cut a little piece of your hair and you have to say tola, which means thank you or that's cool. And so the Karmapa was a very big, burly man and a very powerful uh, looking human being. And so as, as he was going around the stage, cutting people's hair, saying Tola, and Tibetans, by the way, even today, for some reason, they like to wear these big kind of army boots or, uh, you know, these big, cloggy, heavy leather boots, like uh, was Doc Martin type of boots. But anyway, so as he was rushing around the stage, he stepped right on my hand. And it didn't hurt me, but I experienced... I'm going to sound like I have these experiences all the time. I'm giving you the few experiences of my whole life. But he stepped on my hand and I saw in my mind's eye, almost physically saw a net, like an Indra's net, this giant network, spider's network of filaments. And this light just traveled through the whole thing, just spread through the entire web. And I, and I realized this was a web of my lives. And he, you know, Karmapa means the... Karma means action. So karmapa means he who produces Buddha activity, who who changes things, who can uh, make an impact in the world. And that's what he did. He he changed my entire life <laughs> with his foot jumping on me right there. And then you're given a Tibetan name as well. And they gave me the name Jigme Jinpa, which, of course, I didn't know Tibetan at the time. Since then, of course, I, I'm a translator among those things. But um, that means fearless generosity, or you could say uh, giver of fearlessness, which uh, turned out to be very prophetic as well in light of the 
work that I've done in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, it involves a practice of fearlessness and generosity simultaneously. It's exactly what it is, the practice of those two. So that was, um, that was life-changing right there. And so that's when I started thinking about, well, I better go to India and meet some, some great masters. But they did, they did create a center there at that time in Toronto and installed the Lama there. And I started hanging out at the center. I came even to live at the center until I uh, went off to India on my first sojourn. So, yeah, that was a, that was a sem- that was the seminal event that shifted me uh, out of, uh, began to integrate all of these ideas. And then from there, yeah. And then from there, the other very significant, I still had my Gurdjieffian uh, thoughts in my head and, and understandings about the dual nature of our being, persona and essence, which is a foundational to to my life and to the things that I write. But in three-year retreat, I'd been very aware of this mandala, you know, this uh, mandala of the of the enlightened mind, but mandala of the deities and so on. It has the different elements in it. You know, the earth is yellow, and we have green is air, and red is fire, and blue is, well, it could be, it's water, but sometimes it's white, sometimes it's blue. And in the center is space. So I'd been quite aware of this five elemental mandala already, six years into Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. But I also, since I'd had such an intense interest in psychology and understanding what makes people tick, knowing about enlightened mind is um, a rather distant and a rather remote issue uh, removed from our daily struggles and how people are suffering and their misunderstandings and their confusions and everything, all the neurosis we go through. So there wasn't really a bridge there for me between achieving this enlightened, uh, rarefied state and the fact that we're idiots in our normal day to day until I realized in that retreat that I'd been looking at the solution the entire time. I had always been intensely interested in typology, you know, in uh, whether it's Jungian or Neogram or the idea that there is an anatomy to the human psyche. And this is, again, why I have a, I have a, what would I have? I have an issue. I have a beef with uh, Western psychology because they're confused. They don't even know what normal is. If you said, what is the normal anatomy? What is the structure of a normal human being? I don't know. Uh, I have in my library, I have six different encyclopedias of psychology and I think three or four dictionaries of psychology and the one by El Selvier, you know, the big publisher of psychology. They have over 2000 entries of different psychological systems. So it's a big tower of Babel. They really, they don't start with the basic question. What would a normal human being look like? And that was my question. What does a normal human being look like? And all the, and when you realize they don't know that modern psychology or philosophy does not really have a clear conception of what normal would be, you know, the average, yes, uh, still functional and not killing your neighbor, you know, okay, that's average, but that's not, what's a normal, healthy mind look like? When you realize that they don't know that, you also are aware that the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of psychological studies that have been done are wrong because they were all done on abnormal people. They didn't say, okay, we got to find normal people. We'll do this study and we'll find out how normal. No, let's get all the crazy, neurotic, screwed up 
people, the average human being, and we'll do these studies and we'll come up with some conclusions about human beings. No, you came up with a conclusion about pathology. You're only studying pathology. The doctors doing the, the researchers doing the studies are pathological and they're uh, all of their subjects are pathological. Well, they, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll just interject that uh, I've always thought, or for a long, for a long time, thought that uh, the reason people become psychologists is precisely because they sense they themselves have the problems that they want to understand. Yes, very true, and that's why they have you know the highest rate of suicides, highest rate of <laughs> drug addiction, I believe, and so on, because it is difficult trying to grapple with these thorny problems when you don't have the road mapped. So I had up until then, I had been looking for what is the, I, I said before the, the anatomy, but maybe you could call it the road map. What is the template of a human being? What does it look like? It's got to be something simple, direct. It's like I always say, you have a, if you have this huge puzzle on the ground with maybe a million pieces, and you don't have the picture on the box top, how are you ever going to figure it out? Where, where are you going to start from? And what happens in psychology and philosophy is a person finds one puzzle piece and they go, oh, this is a great puzzle piece. And from that, they extrapolate and they build this whole castle in the air. That's why we have 2,000 or 10,000 different theories, which are all wrong, because they don't really know where this puzzle fit. And unless they have the picture from the box top, they don't know where this piece fits what is the relation is to the other? What level it's on? Is it important? Is it major? Is it central? So as I say, as I sat there in my, uh, in my box, <laughs> my wooden box for three years, one day it went, oh my God, this same mandala, actually I've got a little picture of the mandalas here, simplified picture with the different colors and the, the center and the four, four sides. And then I laid them out, you know, as four different or five different colored uh, divisions. I said, oh my God, this is not just a template of the enlightened mind or the body. Now, they'd use this same five-part system. I could talk to you for hours about the history of uh, the Pentad approach to the human body and mind, you know, going back to Zoroastrianism, certainly going back to Egypt, certainly going back to the Vedas 5,000 years ago. They have, they talk about the five elements. Uh, and so Ayurvedic medicine is based on the five elements of the body. Tibetan Buddhism and a lot of the Hindu and Shaivite systems are based on the five elements of the enlightened mind. But nobody had talked about in between the five elements of regular psychology. And particularly, being Gurdjieffians, we could say the five elements of the essence, not of the persona, which is the thing we, everything we learned in school and how we learn to behave in this world, but our essential constitutional self. So, at that point, I said, my God, the human mind is made of these five components. There is a pentad mind. Everything that goes on in our psyche, all of our pleasures, all of our pains, all of our difficulties, all of our struggles, good and evil, all happen in a five-part template. And I'm convinced, and I've been convinced ever since, through through uh, observation that this is true. Of course, we don't have a five-element meter yet, and that's why psychology is a soft science. We don't have those kinds of devices that can measure bioenergies that, you know, you, yeah, you can go look inside the brain for the mind. Good luck. 
that's pretty funny to me. Well, well uh, yeah, since, since we're starting to transition into some of this material, I don't know. Go for it. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to make one observation and then sort of uh, start unpacking some of uh, the system that you've described. Mm. The observation about the five elements to me is that In my own experience, I do. I've seen it come up in a lot of different traditions, and in the Western magical tradition, it comes up as a uh, with some influence from the uh, tattvas from the uh, uh, Hindu tradition. But 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 one of the interesting things I've found in some magical treatments is the emphasis on balancing like a normal. Before one actually goes deeper into like magical practice, it's a- absolutely essential to balance the elemental constitution of the psychology. That it's that otherwise, uh, that's just a recipe for disaster uh, to develop any sort of capability without having that kind of balance. Because without the balance, uh, uh, one's existence is going to be completely uh, distorted. Yeah. So. So that's so I was kind of resonated with uh, uh, the material there. There, there's some level of familiarity, but I could also appreciate how you've innovated with a certain kind of clarity in Western terms around some of the how you locate these different elemental qualities. So, so maybe we but, should just well, yeah. But I want to before I, I actually I want to do something a little. I want to before we get into the elements themselves and the meaning. You talked about the distinction of essence and persona. Yes. Is it? Is it? You want to go for it? I just, I, I just want to be. Oh, let's clarify that for listeners yes. because I think that's a. Before we even talk about how the essence or the personality is uh, constituted, it's, it's, yes. it's. I think it's pretty critical to understand that that foundational distinction, and I'd like to hear how you describe it in your words. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I'm, I and I may deviate from the Gurdjieffian model, uh, tradition, or dogma. Um, in my psychology that I see, and I, to me, I uh, pardon my Christ complex, but I really do think this approach to psychology is the answer. <laughs> so I do have this, you know, I'm going to save the world complex, but it, and it's just because I just, I didn't invent it, but I found it. I'm, I'm good at finding things. So like in my dream, you know, finding the, trying to bring the treasures. Oh, it's very, I didn't realize that dream was prophetic. Trying to bring the treasure out of my dream into reality. That's a good one. Um, but the single greatest, you know, I sent you some slides about the, the, uh, presentation that I give around this or the trainings that I give. And I have this one nice cartoon with basically a cartoon of a man's head with a big hole in it. And it's called psychology's biggest mistake. Uh, the whole of psychology, and I would say, if you read any books on psychology, textbooks, pop psychology, about ninety to ninety-nine percent of them are completely misleading. Why? Because there's a tremendous omission within mainstream psychology, and that is not understanding a basic truth about human beings that we are not a solid block called the personality or the self. We are two very distinct uh, creatures. The essence, as Gurdjieff called it, our essence, and I think it's a perfect word, is our constitutional individuality, which may involve, depending on your belief systems, your karma, your but it's all your predilections, your tendencies, who you are, certainly your genetics, your uh, 
qualities, your potential qualities, your deficits, your weaknesses, your strengths. That's who you are. Maybe you're a natural born musician. Maybe you're going to be a mathematician. Maybe you like uh, walking around in the countryside. Those are inherent qualities, properties, and potentialities. And from day one, and actually many people would say still intrauterine, you become entrained to be able to fit into society. You need, uh, we need a common language, a lingua, lingua franca, uh, not just our verbal language, but the language of how we dress, feral sweater, and how we comport ourselves in every different way. And yes, the persona of someone who's uh, uh, in, born in Swahili land and someone who's born in Germany or someone who's born in Japan can be quite different. But even then, there's some commonalities in human culture. So all of this floatsome and jetsome as culture is poured into us uh, at home. We're taught, taught what male and female is. We're taught what good and bad is. We're taught the entire range of morality. But it's all just information. And through that, we form this thing called a persona. And I don't use the word personality because then that uh, gets confused with the psychological idea of personality. So we perform, we create this persona called a mask, which is a filtration system. And we can have a healthy persona, which is, you could say, an accurate reflection of who I really am. It's a two-way filter. So I can speak to you from my essence. And, you know, essence is supposed to be the positive pole and persona is the, the passive pole. So my essence can speak to you because we have a common language. We have common understandings. We saw the same movies, same background, generally education, American, etc. So that is my filtration system for speaking to you and also for receiving your information into me. And so it is a, a very important, I call it the digestive organ to feed the essence. Now, because essence is the real us and persona is a manufactured artifice, it's a completely artificial machine. It's a robotic a stimulus response device. It has no possibility of uh, maturing or developing. It can upgrade, of course. I can watch a movie and go, oh, yeah. I'm going to take on that characteristic now of that guy because he's he's cool. So you can upgrade it in all kinds of ways. I can upgrade and I'm, and I'm, a, and I'm a doctor now. Now I'm a spiritual uh, seeker. You know, you have all these masks you can wear. But the real thing that can develop and mature in us is essence. Personality has no possibility or persona has no possibility of, of growing up. But essence can mature and become whole. You could say it's a maturing soul. It can develop. It can even uh, transform. Personality will never do anything, and, it, and it, when we die, it will die. But essence has the possibility of maturing to the point where we even go on after death. But it can develop. It's what can become enlightened. It what what can become luminous. It can become light body. So it's a very big distinguishing uh, characteristics here, and that's why I say when you start reading a book on psychology, you say, "Well, wait a minute." Are they talking about persona or are they talking about essence? Oh, they don't even know. So they're mixing the two. It's a mishmash. Almost any book on psychology you look at, except for a few, you know, I've, I've outlined what Karen Horney said and, you know, Masterson. There's all these people who touched on it. Even Jung touched on it and he wrote about it at certain places. He didn't make it foundational, unfortunately, to his work. But um, generally speaking, psychologists are completely in the dark about the fact that what they want to do is work with essence. 
And they may want to fix your persona a little bit, but the persona will change when your essence matures and develops and so on. But the, the problem is that most people, most people now live in persona. They live in their false self. They've come to believe their own mythology. They no longer live in essence. And Gurdjieff pointed this out very, very clearly. Now persona becomes the positive pole or the it's running the show. I, I always say it's like an alchemy. They talk about this false king that has usurped the kingdom. And the real self now is... Uh, gone into hiding, you could say, and it's no longer being nourished. Imagine if you're really a musician, but now you're a, uh, a, a steel magnet, an oil magnet. You're making millions of dollars. But your real being is a sensitive musician. It does happen. You can be diverted to that point. And that's why we sometimes have this thing called the midlife crisis, where a person goes, what have, I been, what have I been doing all my life? That's not even me. That's not what I'm about. And I've had many, many patients like that who... What, you know, I'm 50 years old. What's the point of my life? What am I doing? And I say, well, what, what do you really want to do? I mean, if, you know, if you take away all of the impossibilities, there's always a something, there's always something there. There's always, well, I couldn't do that. Now, that's the one I want to know about. Did you? No, that's impossible. I'm too old. I'm this. I wasn't good looking enough. But what do you really want? That's where you can, one of the ways you can trace back to essence. So yes, the uh, it's quite a journey to uh, live an essence-based life, but that's the only real life. The other life is completely artificial. It's a cultural, culturally uh, manifested and generated life, and it has about the same uh, longevity and the same depth as as our shallow little culture. So but yes, just, but just so our, our teacher used to uh, had a, had his own name for what you're calling persona, which was Android. And <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes, it's exa it's so lifelike. Uh, what's that? West? Did you watch Westworld? Everybody yeah. should see Westworld because our persona is that lifelike. You can say, well, this person seems very animated. They seem very intelligent. They're a famous politician. No, you're watching an android. The real essence of that person. And if you're if you are essence based yourself, you can perceive the essence in other people. And I actually believe that's one of the most important functions of a healer or from my work is when anyone comes to see me. I immediately, automatically, I look at their essence. So I see the best in them. I see their potentiality. I see their wholeness, not their neurotic persona. You know, that's that's just dross. That's just superficial. But I love that. Android is great. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, you know, living an essence-based life in the system that you described was interesting in that it's not that the uh, – uh, persona ceases to function. It's that the persona is aligned or attuned to the essence and an accurate reflection of the essence. And so that it becomes a, an effective interface for the essence to mediate its experience with the world. You said it better than me. Yeah, it's your ally. And Gurdjieff called it that. He, he said, it, you know, this is, um, you have something called, he called it true essence and false essence. True meaning that it is congruent with what you're about and it's an ally in your various internal goals because we have within our essence, every person, and again, that's a problem a lot of people have, don't they? Even at age 50 or 60, they're going, well, what, what am I really here to do? What's the purpose of my life? Well, that answer is in essence. There's, it's impossible not to have that. I always say, if you fall into beingness, which is essence, from beingness always arises a vision, always. So from beingness, 
you know where you want to go. Oh, that's, and, and sometimes we see this in people, they go, aha, that's what I meant to do. I want to, I want to help animals. That's, oh my God, that's the most important thing to me. Or I want to make a beautiful picture all my life. That's really, I love art. I love beauty. So once you have the vision, then activity naturally flows from that. So when people say, what should I do? I say, well, first you have to settle into being. From being will arise the vision. And from the vision, the, the doing is obvious. Here's what you have to do to realize that vision, which is part of your being. But everyone has that. Everyone is, everyone, uh, what high, low, in between, has a destiny uh, uh, as opposed to a fate uh, of what they're here to do. And it doesn't have to be anything special. It's just, it's just what you're here for. It's just what you're here to express. And not necessarily even for some cosmic reason or God is waiting for you to do that. It's just your nature. You know, it's like the that bird out there. Today I had a very nice little bunny rabbit came <laughs> to, to eat my uh, bird seed I had out there. And I looked at him and he says, wow, he's a bunny. He's a perfect bunny. He is being exactly what he is. He's not, there's no pretense. There's no persona there. He's a bunny rabbit. And a tree is a tree. And that is being your nature. It's very hard for human beings to be that pure. That's why we find beauty and purity in nature, because it is what it is, and it doesn't have our false. It's not developed enough to have the capacity to have the falseness that we uh, develop at times. So let me so let me um, uh, ask you to extend a little bit this discussion Mm -hmm. of persona and essence to spirit, because in some of the diagrams you have on your website, etc., cetera, um, um, that, that linkage is made. And so what, what do you mean by spirit in, in relationship to essence and persona? Yeah, I, I have a little diagram. And actually, you know, I, I, I have the good fortune of uh, giving some presentations annually up until these last two years, but they're doing it again later in fall. Uh, they have a very nice... Vajrayana, which is the technical name for Tibetan Buddhism, conference in Bhutan every year when Buddhists from all over the, and actually a lot of different traditions come and uh, we give different talks and so on. And I think one of the talks I gave, and I also made a blog about it, was the um, the triad, the triad idea of the triad self. You know, there's a missing self, as I say, in psychology. They don't understand that there's we're a duality. But in Buddhism, and just about every spiritual tradition, they also have a mistaken view. They don't understand essence either. They go from, here you are as one block, this kind of ego, they call it ego, which I you know hate that name, which it's mm-hmm. a Freudian name, has nothing to do with, with anything, it just means I. But um, we have how we are now, this personality, and then we suddenly have an enlightened state. Boom, there's nothing in between. But in fact, there's three in overlapping, interleaving circles, we have our persona, we have our essence, and there's a little overlapping there, and then we have what I call spirit, uh, higher self. And we can see that essence is in the middle, can transition, is already overlapping, is connected to spirit, but persona has nothing to do with spirit, except, you know, it'll help us along, it'll help us to uh, express ourselves and to experience things and to go where we need to go. You know, it's, it's our ally. It's our, it's our vehicle. It's like a body. It's a vehicle. <laughs> That's all it is. It's, it's handy for now. Um, and body's more than that. Actually, it's a transformative device, which the personality isn't, or the persona isn't. But, um, so we see by that diagram that the, 
when you are connected to your essence, you naturally have a conduit to your spiritual being, your yourself. Now, in Gurdjieffian terms, of course, he talks about higher emotional center, higher intellectual center. In Qigong and Tibetan Buddhism and various other systems, they talk about very much about hierarchies of energies in the body and where what kind of energy you're using and what kind of energy you're centered in that's why we say the body's a, a transformative device so we can be you know we can be functioning on kerosene or we can be functioning on rocket fuel and then we have uh quite different functions going on i i always loved that title of uspensky the psychology of man's possible evolution and that's like a perfect title so we have the possibility within our organism and therefore within our uh psychological beingness i won't call it an organism maybe it's organized um we have the possibility of a different uh level of function a whole a whole new, you know, it's it's the old butterfly, it's the old caterpillar to a butterfly transformation. We have the capacity to live at a much more refined and subtle level, which which means uh, different kind of awareness, different uh, functions, different uh, experience of life. We have that potential, which very few people are interested in. Uh, I, I, again, another few terms that I liked from uh, John Bennett, the British follower of, of Gurdjieff, uh, we have people who are psychostatic and psychodynamic, people who want to change and transform this small percentage of people. Maybe it's becoming greater. Maybe that's one of the, the silver linings of our era is people are so fed up with the meaninglessness and shallowness and conflictedness of ordinary life that they're seeking a deeper meaning or they're seeing that they can't do much about this chaotic mess, but there is a deeper path to follow uh, within one. So uh, spirit to me, of course, I, I very much am convinced or, or aware of, I wouldn't say convinced, but I know some people would find it odd to think that there is such a thing as a light body or a rainbow body, but it is a reality and it's very, uh, very much in evidence in Tibetan Buddhist teachings as well as well Christian teachings everywhere else. Um, so there is a possibility even of that level of transformation. But just as we are, as Gurdjieff talked about, man number three, four, five, six, clearly we can uh, move along the path to a, a higher level of being. That's all. That's, that's, to me, that's spirit. You, you don't have to go any further. But certainly it's called spirit because it is uh, a subtle dimension. It's a subtler dimension of being of substance, you could say it's it's beyond materialism. It's it's realizing we are an energetic body, and uh, that can when we actually change our level of being, our body changes too. Our cells change. Our biophotonic structure uh, dramatically changes, and people are able to uh, do very mirac seemingly miraculous things, but they're quite normal uh, when you create a different body within yourself. What second Kesjan body the uh, Jeff called it, but uh, a luminous body. And, uh, you know, I have my own theories about uh, uh, reincarnation and light body development. Uh, I probably would upset a lot of people, especially, the, I always say I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a llama by my training. I, I acquired that uh, nomenclature, but I, I'm a complete heretic, what we call in, in <laughs> Buddhism, it's called Mutekpa. So I always say I'm Lama Mutekpa. I'm a heretic Lama because I believe in Gurdjieff's uh, approach to reincarnation. 
It's something you have to earn. It's something you have to develop. The average person, they develop nothing. There is no real progression of essence and dust to dust and ashes to ashes. And also the higher parts go to the moon and the sun and the, the, the Bennett calls it the soul pool, soul stuff pool. Um, but if you develop yourself to a certain extent, then it is possible that you do survive the death of the physical organism and you can reincarnate or find another shell in which to progress further. So I do have my theory, uh, which is not from any teacher, but what percentage of light body development you require in order to then pass on to actually in in Buddhism, they call it stream winners. It's a very interesting idea in Theravada and Buddhism that you're a, you know, you've, you've entered a real stream of beingness as opposed to just being washed down the, down into the gutter. So, um, yeah, that's that's a little answer about spirituality to me. It's it's definitely that you are on the path to full transformation. Otherwise, there's no point. I mean, what, would you want to go halfway? <laughs> and it may take. It's got to take you more than one lifetime. <laughs> Even those beings who got enlightened in one lifetime, well, of course, they had 200 lifetimes of, of developing along the way. And fortunately, as I say, I've seen enough miraculous things, you know, in search of the miraculous, that uh, I don't need any convincing. Uh, I've experienced internally uh, what healers can do and what spiritual masters can do and how they can just fill the light uh, the room with luminosity, how they can reach into the so-called bardo and pluck a being out of the after-death state or out of their state of difficulty. Uh, you know, I've seen some pretty wild and wacky things because I've spent a lot of my life traveling through Asia, Bhutan and Nepal and India and so on. So uh, you get to see those kinds of things, which are manifestations of that uh, spirituality. And there's still, you know, there still are some guys. There's a, a John Chang. I think he's still alive. He can set. He's a very famous Qigong master, teaching the Mo Pai system. I'm quite big on Qigong these number of years, uh, but he could actually set things on fire with his hand. And he was, you know, checked out by scientists and so on. So there's these these uh, kind of what they call siddhas uh, or siddhis, rather not siddhas. They're the people. This the the people who have cities are siddhas. But, uh, Siddhas are with S I D D H I uh, is a city is a, a psychic ability which is a manifestation of your development. It, it by itself it does it means nothing and it's just you know uh, smoke and mirrors and unless it's uh, helping other beings there's no sense to to throw those things around or show them off. But they are a demonstration that quite higher capabilities are possible for a human being. So uh, uh, in the end, the whole purpose of that is to help others. I mean, why are, you, why are we doing any of this unless we can reach out and help others out of their confusion and out of their suffering and out of their pain? Because it's immense. You know, the life is suffering. Buddha was quite correct. You know, it's quite accurate. The nature of life, the nature of, as we know, the three of us know, old age, old age, sickness and death. There it is right around the corner. You know, this is not a great setup. I always say I need 300 years to accomplish what I want to do right now. So it ain't fair and it's, you know, it's not nice. So it, life is difficult. So if we can help uh, alleviate other people's suffering and the more enlightened we are, the more capacity we have to help people in a, in a major way. So that's underlying the, it's got to be the motivation. Otherwise you'll always, you, you won't develop anything. You won't develop any kind of spirit unless that's the motivation. It's, it, it's actually an interesting point okay. about the ethics of uh, why why we do any of this. Um, yeah. 
I mean, one of the challenges I guess I have with the Gurdjieff notion of the development of the soul or the development of a uh, sort of a permanent beingness is that um, there's also the danger of looking at uh, people uh, and drawing conclusions about the relative possibilities that they have and mm -hmm. thereby using that as a basis for segregation yes. as, a, as opposed to the Buddhist idea, even if you're in a hell realm for five million years, when the karma that got you there exhausts itself, there's a possibility of a um, of moving forward. And in that sense, then there's a sense of meaning or purposefulness in trying to help all beings in all forms. This is a, one of the um, one of my big fat translation of a Tibetan uh, very important Tibetan practice and liturgy that I had to translate, probably based on some promise I made in the past life, stupidly. But the basis of this whole practice, we talked about fearless generosity earlier. So the, the, book, is the, book, the book says uh, Chod, right? Or Chod. Yeah, Chod. Yeah, the D is not really pronounced. It makes it into an umlaut, Chod. Um, sure. But this is, in this practice, among other things, and it's certainly not the only practice in Buddhism we do this or in any other tradition, we are offering to, uh, to assuage the suffering of beings in the hell realms, in the hungry ghost realms, in the in various other, the animal realms, all these different types of pervasive suffering in all its varieties. So we are making the conscious effort. You could say it's a mental exercise in compassion and a selflessness and getting rid of our own egotism and understanding the sufferings of all beings. But I certainly believe, and I'm, uh, I am clear, I want to say believe, I hate that word, as if, if this, or there's another possibility. I know in myself, <laughs> whether anyone else wants to or not, that you're also having an impact on those beings. You know, your, your intentions do go far. And Remote healing is a, is a reality. Uh, I do it all the time with patients, by the way. But you can affect beings at a great distance, and you can affect beings in other realms. We can reach people uh, in uh, that have passed on. We don't know that they're, you know, they're not necessarily ghosts floating around or reincarnate wherever they are. We can reach beings through our intention. It's, it's a great, you know, this is, again, one of the great deficits, one of the great tragedies of our culture that has become so materialistic and non-shamanic and uh, we, we are told that all of these possibilities are not uh, that these are all not possibilities uh, and the magic of childhood and because children know these things children know oh grandma died can i i can still talk to her y yes you can <laughs> of course you can why not but we lose that innocence we lose that purity because of the reductionist materialist direction that uh, the whole world has taken really and uh and that that goes right into pandemics and everything else. You know, not why why is there no statements? I don't see, and I don't well a little bit from Buddhists, but there's no statements about the spiritual aspects of a pandemic or of a war. I mean, what what does this mean on a global, not just psychological basis? But what does this mean on a spiritual level? What what is that that impels us towards this very dark activity? But we we don't have to get into all of that, but. Um, yes, compassion is, um, and, uh, 
realizing that we can benefit other beings no matter our station in life, no matter our, we don't have the money to do it, we don't have the time to do it. You can do it sitting in your own little chair. You can benefit other beings. It's the core. Well, I'd like to, uh, um, I've been enjoying this conversation, but I want to get into the pentad because we, you referenced it earlier. And um, I think it's one of the, um, from what I've seen so far of your work, that's one of the major contributions. So, so for, for our listeners, can you sketch the overall shape of this and how it works? As I say, there's three pillars to my system here. The, when you look at persona and essence, essence has a structure, and that structure is the, uh, I've called it various things, the five ways of power. Some people don't like the idea of power. So you can also call it a kind of a traditional uh, way of describing it is the five wisdoms. But we have five components within our psyche that encompass every possibility of uh, healthy function and just about every possibility of unhealthy. When I say just about, we're not necessarily talking here about schizophrenia or organic uh, neurological conditions and so on, but within our normal understanding of human good and bad behavior, um, it's all encompassed within this set of five. And <clears throat> you talked earlier about the tattvas. Well, I, when I realized that these five, first of all, and I took this partly from, uh, honestly, the works of uh, Gillette and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, but they already, you know, many people have had a four-part system. And don't let me go into that, but every four-part system is wrong, <laughs> especially going back to Aristotle, Empedocles, Empedocles sorry, uh, to Hi uh, Hippocrates, to, to Galen. <clears throat> that was all wrong. That came from India. They chopped off. I've got, I've got a number of papers I've written. I haven't published yet, but written about the loss of the fifth element. It's a very, very important uh, uh, event in, in Western history. Interesting. Because the space is the center of the mandala, and the West lost the center. Now, what is the center? I gave these names, as I say, somewhat based on other people's ideas, but we have air element is the creator, the water element is the lover, uh, the fire element is the warrior, the earth element is the ruler, and the space element is the guru. Those are quite descriptive terms. Now, you talked about the tatvas, as I said. So now I've got sub-elements, which was the tatvas about. You have the elements and the sub-elements. So there is a fire version of creator, which I call resourcefulness, a water element of within the air element, which is communication, etc. So that's why we have 25 different possibilities here. And in my books that I'm writing, here's one that I'm... I mean, it's just a mock-up, but this is five-element energy healing. And then, because it's talking about doing energy work and so on, but then we have five-element psychology. There's lots of charts and there's lots of diagrams that we're working with, but this is a core understanding of these different parts. Now, who are they? Very, very simply put, uh, creator is your, just what it says, your ability to manifest to express yourself uh, in whatever way you do. And this is a very, very active part of our psyche because almost every decision you make is involved with some kind of creative. It's not just painting a picture, some kind of creative decision that, uh, let's say, should I walk over there or should I drive? Should I turn left or should I? We're constantly calculating and tabulating and figuring out, and that is a creative, resourceful uh, expression. So creator, the wind element is very, very busy because uh, on a 
biological or on an elemental level, uh, creator is the wind element or activity, all motion, all activity, which is from the subatomic level to the wind in the trees to the movement of galaxies, that all is subsumed under creator. So in our mind, there's all this kind of activity of figuring things out, putting things together, uh, putting things together that uh, never existed before, or just figuring out which pathway is best. Then we have, and of course, they're arranged in a very specific pattern, uh, which we won't talk about the model of the elements right now, but they're arranged. Then we have, uh, let's contrast these, these, let's contrast these two, because there's some polarities here. Air and earth are poles. They're opposite each other in the diagram, and they are opposite in their expression or their meaning. And then water and fire are obviously opposites. Here, here, I'll call this the struggle of the generations. So here we have the innovative, the new, the creative, the dynamic, uh, coming up with, uh, you know, differences and so on, uh, expressing ourselves in a unique way. Now here we have the ruler, conformist, plotting, structure, hierarchy. So this is what really the world is based on, as we can look around us, the world's based on structure, but our psyche and our society is based on structure, right? And we have the psychological associate. You can't just hang out a shingle and say, I'm a doctor. You have to go through the hierarchy and the structures of society. This is money. This is security. This is stability. And in mind, that's what that is. This is your, if you didn't have the proper structure of your mind, you can't think straight. You're not grounded. You're all over the place. You have no continuity of thoughts. You don't have a structure in your life. Maybe your house is a mess. Your business is a mess. You have no structure and stability or a sense of security. And of course, right now, we've had tremendous threat to our inner ruler for some time, where the rug is pulled out from us every five minutes. We have no structure. We, what's happening? There's a war. There's a pandemic. Oh, you might be dead. You might be alive. We don't know. Everything was going along nicely in your life. And now, oh, you can't travel anymore. You can't do this. Wear a mask. You can't even show your face. You get, you know, get vaccinated or else. Whatever. So this... But this is nothing new. This ruler in our being is always under attack because it also represents status, right? Where a rulership, if rulership is healthy, I call it um, being in your domain. It has nothing to do with ruling over other people necessarily, but you are where you belong. This is my home. This is my space. Even if, you know, maybe I can move tomorrow. I don't care. But I kind of know where things fit. I know how my life fits. I know where I'm going structured. So these two are often in conflict, in an, even in a normal situation. There is a polarity here because you want to do things new and inventive and exciting. And no, we want to keep uh, stay at home, keep things regular, do what we've always done, keep to the routine. Then we have our warrior. Warrior, the keynote to warrior is drive, purpose, function. Every cell, everything in the world, everything, every photon has a direction, has a purpose. A microbe has a purpose. That little bunny rabbit has a purpose. So we as a human being have all of these drives as well. And we're talking healthy right now. I'll get to the loss and shadow side later. But in the healthy uh, level of things, healthy dimension, this drive is part of our core being of what we want to accomplish. And it's about like every movie we've seen with the warrior, it's about overcoming obstacles, overcoming any kind of resistance in a healthy way, not in a ruthless or, or a, uh, uh, 
negative way, but accomplishing our purpose and benefiting others. Again, if you look at the movies, you'll see all these archetypes archetypes of the warrior. He's saving the human race, he or she, and so on. The, the hero archetype. This is going out and bettering the world, even self-sacrifice in order to help others. And that's what warriors really do. That's what soldiers, that's what policemen, firemen, they're risking their lives to benefit others. But we each have that warrior within us, whether it's in raising your child or, or your business or healing, whatever it is, we all have that warrior side. That is, and of course, this is predominantly a male characteristic Please, if you have any preconceptions, throw them out. There is a polarity. There is a yin-yang in life. Even flowers have a yin and yang. It has nothing to do with your gender. It's just the polarity. There's a, there is a positive and negative, a male, uh, a female a type of polarity. So this is clearly more prominent in the male physique, in the male hormonal structure. You know, we have the adrenal energy in the male uh, emotional uh, structures, though, again, uh, Everyone has the yin and yang in their own being, but this is more predominantly male uh, for good and ill. And then this one is more predominantly female. And again, in any male can have a more predominant lover or a more predominant warrior. Many males lack an adequate lover traditionally, right? Because lover is about, uh, it's about love, but I would say it's about connection. That is the key word. Connection means intimacy. And that's not just with people. But if I have a connection with my computer when I'm working, I have a connection with, uh, I see beautiful things. That's a connection. Uh, it means being connected to so many different aspects of your life and to people as well. And I call it intimacy because it's like, oh, yeah, I, I can eat this apple. I'm, I'm really having an intimate connection with that. That's lover. And then we have all the sub-elements we talk about. The fire part of, of that watery lover is compassion. There's flow. There's idealism, visionary, balance, so on and so on. So, again, you can see that these are in contrast to each other. Oh, let's stay home and cuddle. No, oh, I'm going to go out with the boys and, you know, we're going to play some competitive game. We're going <laughs> to... Though these days you'll find, I think, an equal amount of women playing video games that are you know, shooting everybody up. And everybody has this stuff, but this can be a conflict traditionally, certainly. Look back at the 40s and 50s, look at some of the old movies. It is like so classically, the male is just right here in the red and the female is over here. No, I'll make dinner now and everything like that. So these are parts within our psyche. I, I'm not really big on typology that at all that says you're even even the uh, Jungian Myers-Briggs type of division it's kind of a pigeonhole so we have all five of these within us now there's one we didn't discuss yet which is the guru the center and this is our discriminating wisdom this is at the center because it sees both sides how do you resolve the and I've got books on that they're coming uh, how do you resolve this war between the sexes, which is still ongoing? If you don't think it is, again, watch the movies. You'll see it's played out all the time. It's just constant. And whether you're talking transgender, whatever you're doing, there's still this conflict going on. You can only resolve this through the center, through the guru. Because the guru sees both sides. Oh, yeah, could be this one, could be that one. Matter of fact, I can hold simultaneously these two different opposite concepts, and I see the validity of both of them. So our guru is our, our wise individual. And so isn't it interesting that it got knocked out of Western history, Western philosophy, and they went on to a four-part model. And still today, we have dozens and dozens. I've cataloged them all in, in my books, Kirzi and um, 
Uh, actually, I have this. Oh, here's 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 one funny one here. You know, there's a million selling book out right now called Surrounded by Idiots. I should have written that book. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's just a takeoff on this book uh, about your I think the guy's name was Don Lowry. He developed the four color system. And so this guy in Scandinavia, I guess Sweden, he wrote a book called Surrounded by Idiots and he sold another million. But these four part systems have been around for a long time. They're all missing the center. It's crazy, like we have no wisdom being. So our, where our wisdom being is where our conscience is, where, where we integrate, where we have mastery, where we uh, can make discerning this judgments that are accurate because we're taking into consideration everything. So that's the idea. So wouldn't this be a perfect world? And uh, you're, you're very familiar with positive psychology. You can lump all of the qualities of positive psychology into these categories. No problem. So it would be a perfect world if we all lived here, right? And the whole of elemental psychology, as I see, is learning how to connect with your essence and these qualities, which are inherent in everybody. But alas, alack, something happens. Ta-da! We flip the page. And something that I have called loss, which is, imagine you have a warrior. I have this, you know, this... Uh, urge to go out and conquer and be successful for the benefit of beings and get rid of negativity and get rid of evil in the world. And then I disconnect. And now I have the weakling. Uh, I I really can't. It's too big a job for me. I really can't do that. Uh, I'm too weak. I'm not a strong person. They called me a sissy anyway. And no, I'm just not adequate, etc. So all of these are states of loss that everyone experiences. The lover becomes the forlorn. Uh, nobody cares for me. They don't really like me. You know, if they knew me, they really hate me, etc., etc. The creator becomes the impotent. I, I can't do. I can't create that. I do, I'm not an artist. I can't. I, you know, I, I can't really be. I'll just do this little thing here because. And then the ruler becomes the powerless. Oh, well, you know, they they have control. They're telling me what to do. Uh, the government will tell me what to do. I trust them. I trust the CDC. Well, censor that. We, we might get thrown off the, the whole thing. Uh, but, you know, this is this is where we become uh, slaves uh, in various different ways because we have no trust in our own rulership. And then the wisdom guru becomes the dummy. I love this when people say, I had a wonderful voice teacher uh who taught the link ladder, not link letter, but not art link letter, but art link ladder method of uh, natural voice. And uh, when he would get people in a group, you know, uh, they would be, say something and he said, oh, no, you're stuck in your throat. You know, we're, we're looking at where the voice is. Your, 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 your voice is in your throat. And he says, well, why is it there? He says, I don't know. You do know. I don't know. You do know. <laughs> and he would harangue that person for 10 minutes if he had to until finally he said, well, it's because of so somewhere we sometimes do know why we uh, think we're such, you know, we, we, we think we don't know, but we do know. We have internal knowingness. Of course, some things we don't, we don't have the information. That's different than a knowingness. We're talking about knowingness. So, you know, that is not healthy thing. I, I ain't doing that. You know, that's, no, you know, it, it's a knowingness about uh, intrinsic thing, not about information. You're not going to know it all. So this is a bad situation. And I tell you a tremendous truth here. Power and law, I mean, loss and shadow make the world go around. We're about to talk about shadow. If you look at the whole of our society, 
the main mechanism, I won't say purpose, because it sounds like somebody's pulling the strings, and of course they are, but the main mechanism of our society and our culture, and most every culture, is keep everybody in loss. You don't want a society full of powerful, empowered people? Come on. This is, these are free-thinking people, people who have their own will, who have their own understanding, who are cooperative, who are not manipulating others, they're not stealing from each other. Wow, this is the perfect world. This is the world that democracy was based on. <laughs> this silly idea of democracy is based on grown-up people who are essence people. That is the problem with our society, is they, they created this thing as if people were empowered. But most people are in loss. And it's a very painful to be in loss. It's very painful to go around thinking that you're weak and that you're stupid and so on, even if your mother or father or school or everybody else told you so. Or TV, of course, you turn on any commercial, it's telling you how inadequate you are. That's the basis of every commercial. Yeah, you would be great if you had this car. Right now, you're a schnook, you're, you're a schmuck. But you would, you would have the love of women or men or whatever, or you'd be cool if you had this product. But right now, you're inadequate. You know, that... We've been sold inadequacy nonstop. So nobody likes being in this pain. And so unfortunately, now we have the next phase. The people, uh, I have uh, two of the books, three of the books that I'm writing, The Ten Laws of Power, The Ten Laws of Loss, Ten Laws of Shadow. One of the laws of loss is loss is tempted into shadow. I don't know how to get back into power. I don't know how to be an empowered person. I don't know how to really feel my strength. Not pretend strength, to feel my inner strength, not bragging, not pretending, to really feel. I don't know how to do that, but I know how to kick my dog. I know how to push someone around. I know how to be a bully. So the uh, warrior that went into loss and felt like a weakling now can become a bully. Or whatever else have I got here? Bully, uh, ruthless, cruelty, cleverness, suspicion, dominance. And each one of those... Uh, points of loss has the potential to go into shadow. And so we have the, here's a big one right now. The creator becomes the black magician, right? So you're using your creative ability to, for, for example, oh, just go into the uh, supermarket. Why do you have 84 different kinds of dish soap? You know, you could say that's not really black magic. Yes, it is. You're try everybody's trying to grab your money with this and that. Why don't you just have two? And what, besides, why do they have pesticides in all the food? Why do they have all these? What, with 250,000 different chemicals that are toxic and carcinogenic floating around that you know we're producing all the time. So the black magician is using all kinds of trickery. And uh, of course, all deception and lying comes from this, right? One of the greatest areas of human creativity is lying, right? You can, you can make up anything you want and you can convince. It's very clear through the pandemic. You can convince, what are they saying? You can fool all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, and you can't fool all the people. Maybe P.T. Barnum said that, they say. He said it. Maybe it comes from somewhere else. But it's pretty darn easy to manipulate the public, and we know there's a huge industry, not just the advertising industry, but the, um, the uh, social engineering, the manipulation of public opinion is huge. It was adopted from Bernays and Freud and Bernays, his, his nephew, back in the, uh, I guess, starting in the 30s. And uh, that's very big business. So we know people can be manipulated. Lying is very big in our culture. Our culture is based on lies. Politics, uh, advertising. Advertising is the lying industry. That's all it is. I mean, uh, are they really talking about? If you look at the old ads, it's quite fun. If you look in the old magazines and so on, back in the, 
you know, 30s, even 40s, even into the 50s, they would say, here's why this car is good. It's got this kind of motor. It's got now, then suddenly it's because you have this beautiful girl in the car and the car looks sexy and it's fat. You know, you start selling persona to people. Um, And then, for example, the lover, the forlorn, the someone who's brokenhearted, then they become manipulated, manipulative, uh, attention seeking, different ways of getting connection in a dysfunctional way. Uh, showing off and you have different ways of being flirtatious using your sexuality different ways of trying to get the love you feel you don't have and then we have the bully the despot the ruler becomes the manipulator the despot the uh, uh the bad boss etc the bad politician and most politicians are right here and uh then we have unfortunately the dummy becomes the charlatan mm-hmm. and i i have said again and again you can quote me uh, the future. Uh, I have said we're living in not, you know, they, we have, what did we have? The the uh, machine age, the scientific age, uh, different ages. This is the age of the charlatan. We have, uh, every other day we've got some summit on or help pouring out of the machinery of publishing, but also within politics, within religion, within art. This is the age of the charlatan. You don't know, but you pretend you know. And you lead others down the garden path. Gurdjieff called them Hasne Mustian, if I'm pronouncing it right. Of course, I've never heard Gurdjieff words pronounced by anybody, just in books. But he talked about the worst sin you can uh, perform is leading others down the wrong path spiritually. Very, very common nowadays because they may go down some dead end and they they don't know how to get back. They're so filled with uh, another saying I say is the most dangerous thing in the world is a wrong idea or just an idea. And maybe the second most dangerous thing is the person who promotes the wrong idea. So that we, we live in a, in a world of this kind of shadow. So um, how do we get out of shadow, out of loss, back into power? Well, that is the big question. And that is the, fortunately, because I have background in Tibetan Buddhism and so on, we don't have to be uh, restricted to techniques which are strictly narrative or, you know, talking cures. We actually have internal meditative visualizations using sound, using ancient techniques, a lot of them taken from Tibetan Buddhism, to accentuate, to empower essence, to get out of loss and so on. But one very, maybe last thing about this issue is um, we're all familiar with the Christmas Carol, the wonderful story about Scrooge and how he, you know, reformed, especially the one with Alistair Sims, uh, favorite of course um you'll notice that at the end when he has gone through all of this horror of the ghosts of christmas past and he repents and he becomes re-empowered he goes from being this stingy nasty cruel uncaring person to being a compassionate and uh joyous human being how does he do it how does he get there in that movie he goes through loss you, the sad part is you cannot get from shadow directly to power. It, it, it may be, maybe theoretically, but it really never happens. You have to go through back through your loss. So you go, oh, my God, like Alistair said, oh, my God, what have I done? I've seen my past. I've seen what a fool I've been. I've ruined my own life and other people's life. I've become this hardened, shriveled shell of a human being. Then he is able to burst into full re-empowerment. So who wants to go back into their law? You went into shadow in the first place because you couldn't stand the pain. How many people have the courage to go from their shadow to face their loss? Now, when I say face their loss, 
the funny thing is you're not facing that you're a bad person. You're not facing that you're horrible. You're facing that the pain that you you're facing the mistake you made in the first place, that you were a disempowered person, that you were a weakling. You're just facing a an illusion. But, but is it, is it, is it fair to say that uh, in, in that in the way you're describing it, that going into loss means being willing to be fully present with full attention to the sense of loss yes. to, to allow because it's 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 the reaction or the pushing away of loss that drives us into shadow. Yes, there, there is. I have a I, I wrote a. Not, I guess it's a book. It's trying to be a book. It's called the the Lost Chronicles, and I have you actually have eight different components of loss, and certainly at its core is trauma. There's some traumatic experience, and then there's an inner buffer which you hide from yourself, an outer buffer that you hide from others because no one you don't tell a stranger, oh yeah, here's what I went through. Oh, poor me. Well, some people do, but then there's all these different components of uh, the loss process the trauma is there and then you have the new narrative about who you are it's not just oh i'm a traumatized i'm i'm therefore a weak person or i'm a wrong a wrong person and you have various narratives that form around this you have the, the whole component of self-confidence and so on so yes to to look at that whole mechanism if we could just look at it and go oh yeah that's bullshit it's complete bs and that's what i try to do with patients i try to show or even a homeopathic remedy saying that whole thing that you've been running from is nonsense it's a lie so you don't have to run from it you're you're free but to go through that process is nonetheless painful it's like you're reviewing it you don't most people just are not lucky enough to just pop out of it and go holy cow i'm not really stupid or weak or unloved and so on i'm 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 part of the universe, you know. Now, uh, while I say that, uh, that is an opportunity for a tremendous amount of uh, charlatanism or falsity, right? Right? Because I can show you, again, in my library, which is actually all on my computer, (laughs) I probably have 60 books on happiness, how to be happy, and probably another 50 books on self-confidence. And almost every one of them is about painting a happy face. They're not the only way to real joy is to essence, get to essence, which is facing your loss and so on. So it's not just, oh, yes, I can make myself happy. I'll pump myself up. I'll go, go you know, and, and there's people who've made many, many hundreds of millions of dollars having these kind of seminars. I don't want to mention names. I'll sue me. But, uh, you know, this is a popular thing is you're the greatest. You can do it. Oh, wonderful. Are you really out of loss and shadow? It ain't so easy. That's a that's a big habit. So you have to go through a process, whether it's through a therapist, through yourself, through through correct information, and find your essential self. So, you know, again, self-confidence, all these damn books I, that I hate, all these stupid books, self-confidence is finding your true confidence. That's all. It's not, oh, here's the 18 things you can do <laughs> to be more confident. No, just go into your essence. Confidence is naturally there. It's your natural state natural state of beingness in is inherently has confidence has rulership has warriorship so that is the struggle and in the in the therapy aspect or the self-treatment aspect self-help aspect of this process imagine if you're able to have the ability we all do to self-analysis self-monitor and go oh uh, i just went into loss you know that that guy just said something funny to me i 
you know, said that he doesn't like my tie. I, I, I just went to loss. Maybe it's lover loss. Maybe it's warrior loss. He says, well, what you're saying is stupid. Ooh, maybe I'm a dummy. No, I just went into law. So for me, it's a process of all day, whether I'm driving, you know, especially in my vulnerable areas, for example, driving a car. That guy's an idiot. <laughs> Why do I think that? That's my shadow speaking. Why did I say that? Well, what he did was hurtful to me. He just cut in or, or actually for me, it's usually he did something stupid. He doesn't use his signal. I mean, what do you think that thing's for? It's for helping other people. But So I get indignant. So why is that? Something in me gets hurt about that. I, I get, I go into loss about that. I go into loss about that because I was hurt. They, I was hurt by the fact that people are inconsiderate. And it touches me when I see this inconsiderate thing happening. I feel hurt. And then I go into my shadow. So I have to watch that. Am I going to go with that? Or am I just going to go into my power? Oh, okay. So this is how this person behaves. That's how they're brought up. I can have compassion for them. Now, you could say these techniques are not unique to what we're talking about. These are everywhere in psychology and even self-help. But if you understand the map, then you know what you're doing. Rather than saying, okay, I'll feel better if I count to 10, breathe deep. Okay, I'm not mad anymore. That doesn't bring me back into essence. That doesn't bring me back into my empower. If I understand the anatomy, now I can do these things. And there's a lot of these techniques everywhere, like using sound, using mindfulness. Mindfulness, my God. I always say and I, and when I, in my slides, I don't think I sent you that one, but uh, there's a great slide of this long, vast desert, undulating desert, and there's a car there. Just in a car in the middle of the desert. Yeah, that's mindfulness. <laughs> they put you in a state of awareness, and then wh wh where's the road? Where's the map? What am I doing now? Why would you possibly just be mindfulness and then that's it? Shouldn't you be mindfulness of the actual structure? So I have something called elemental mindfulness. If you're going to be mindful, now see what the real landscape of your being is and start to what, be mindful moment to moment. Am I in loss and shadow? My goal is to be in power as much as I can, because then I'll be my best me. I'll be my, I'll be progressing. I'll be maturing. I'll be developing as a human being because spending time in loss and shadow, uh, that goes nowhere fast or it goes downhill fast. So uh, that's the whole system in a nutshell. Power, loss, and shadow is the third pillar. So we have uh, the duality of persona and essence. We have the pentad mind, and we have power, loss, and shadow. That's all she wrote. <laughs> I don't know perfect. what I think That's perfect because we have about, about 10 minutes left. So, uh, 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 so, so, so now we can uh, uh, play around with some elaborations and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, but, but the, yeah, the, the, Idea. What I what I uh, one one question I had that I wanted to throw at you uh, just briefly is that um, in Tibetan uh, uh, practicum, there's this notion of deity practice, um, mm. oh. and I'm interested to know if you, in light of what you've been talking about, do you understand deity practice as a way of uh, tuning in or invoking an, a, a pure essential quality in oneself, or is there something more to that? Oh, yeah. You did take a left turn there and into a whole different arena. <clears throat> yeah, well, interestingly, the essence, the, the deity practice that you're talking about is all based on that same five elements. You know, that's why the deities have certain colors and certain affinities and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you work with your internal body systems, the chakra system of Tibetan Buddhism is five elemental. It is in Hinduism too, but we won't, we won't get into the, the ins and outs of the history of the chakras. There's books written on that. But um, that also is working with the five elements. And in 
Qigong and Taoism you're also working with, even though it's the Chinese five elements, psychologically, they correspond exactly. Physically, they're a little different, but the psychology of the, of the Chinese five elements and the Western five elements is shockingly uh, similar if you change their names around. But as far as a deity practice or yiddam, which means yid is mind, dam is uh, connection or uh, samaya really, which is um, commitment. So sometimes it's even translated as commitment being. Uh, that's a whole topic. And again, there's many books, Western English books written on well, what they call generating the deity. But uh, my experience of it and my take on it, and again, I'll, I'm heretical. So anyone who's uh, attached to the dogma of Tibetan Buddhism, you can hold, cover your ears. Uh, the Yidam is an archetypal force. It is, in fact, it is a conduit to uh, suprahuman energies and suprahuman consciousness. There's no question. It's not just a uh, visualization. You visualize yourself as a deity. It's not just, oh, yeah, this is a, a training from my mind. No, it's actually a spiritual practice, which means it does connect to actual uh, realms and spheres of suprahuman consciousness. So there's tremendous power in uh, connecting to and being uh, in, absorbed into the deity. But the deity mainly consists of form, sound or energy, you could say, and mind. And this is this three part division is there in Gurdjieff, you know, uh, uh, the moving center, the emotional center and the mental center. And Taoism, which they call it the three treasures of, again, form, uh, emotions and energy and consciousness. So this threefold division of uh, a human being is, is a reality. And when you're becoming a deity, you're taking on an enlightened form. We could definitely say that our body is, uh, as we are, you could say it's a karmic, genetic, however you want to look at it. It's accidental. Okay, you, know, you got a body, it looks like this, whatever, it's this size, this shape. But the yidam is exactly uh, reflecting, we talked about congruence before, it's congruent with a fully enlightened expression of form. So every part of that deity, the bracelets that they're wearing, the way they hold a certain object, the look on their face, their color, their hair, everything is uh, a living symbol, just as we talked about with her back uh, earlier, Isha Shwala de So the Yidam's form is, you could say, idealized or archetypal meaning. If your body uh, had perfect expression and meaning, then, including the five elements, then it would look like a yidam. And there's many different yidams because we have different mind styles. Maybe you want a very peaceful expression. Maybe you want a very wrathful. Maybe you want extremely fierce because you have a lot of, of that kind of tumultuous energy, or you're dealing with a lot of tumultuous energy. So generally speaking, you're supposed to have one yidam, but uh, for myself, I'm, I've got maybe a quiver, you know, uh, that I pull out and use wherever is needed for my state or what's happening around us. And so that's the form idea. And then the sound, uh, mantra is very big in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and that comes from Sanskrit uh, theories and practices of sound. Sound has a very uh, magical, you know, we know about somatics. That's a whole discussion to talk about sound. Maybe, maybe probably most 
viewers don't know that, you know how we were all taught that sound is this little sine wave. We look at these little pictures. This is not true. We now know that sound is spherical. Every word I'm saying is a bubble. It's a sphere of sound. And that sphere of sound uh, goes at the speed of light. And in fact, or, or it excites atoms to go at the speed of light. It's quite an extraordinary process. So actually, your your sounds that you're making becomes light and goes out to the far reaches of the universe, potentially. But in, in the Sanskrit and then Tibetan systems, different sounds resonate in different parts of the body and different uh, areas of the mouth and the brain and so on. And so there's a whole practice to sound vibration in the body, whether you're doing, uh, whether you're doing it silently, uh, just mentally verbalizing it, or you're expressing it through your vocal cords. Uh, that has a a sound, an expression, and that's related to that same yidam, that same archetype we're working with. Yes, some of these uh, mantras actually have a meaning; you could translate it, but that's it's quite irrelevant. It's a it's a sound therapy, a vibrational therapy. Therapy, of course, that's known in Sufism, the ninety nine names of God, and this has been used all over the world. Sound, a uh, sacred sound, is a very definite transformative uh, device. And so we have that, you know, it, there's even an extensive way of using sound for healing. Like you can use mantra for healing the stomach, mantras for healing a headache, etc. But then these are transformative mantras. And uh, if you use them continually, the same with the form, the idea is not to get fixated on them. There's, very, there's famous little stories like, you know, for example, there's a deity that you visualize where you're a part buffalo and you have these huge horns and so on. And the Tibetans like to tell this story about this famous guy, I forget his name, meditated in the cave for 30 years. He perfected his uh, practice of the Yidam, but then he couldn't get out of the cave because his horns were too big. <laughs> so you're not supposed to fixate on this as being some solid, solidified. It's, it's basically a hologram that is, that is inherently supposed to take you into a formless state. You're not supposed to fixate on the form. The form is a vehicle to go beyond. We need a bridge. We can't go directly to formless, formless usually. We need a bridge. So we go into an archetypal uh, form that's and also the world becomes archetypal. You know, we're in a pure realm. We're not sitting in our room somewhere in Santa Fe or uh, uh, San Francisco, or whatever. Now we're in a, a pure realm. So it's training the mind, especially for death, to have a what they call a pure vision. And then last, the last component is the maybe the most important part. When you're doing a yidam practice, the most difficult part is the identity of the yidam. Because if you're going, oh, yeah, I'm Asa, I'm sitting here, I'm visualizing myself, I'm red in color, and I'm a 16-year-old girl, and I've got this uh, skull cup of blood here, and I've got a curve, and that, well, then I'm losing the whole uh, meaning of this practice, because I have to identify that that is my nature. Here is my real spiritual nature. Uh, this funny form that I'm going to lose before very long, anyway, that's not really me. I have this archetypal nature as this a light body being in this particular form, and that is my uh, my pure consciousness. So, really, when you're doing the yidam practice, you're doing the mantra. You're not supposed to be sitting there, obviously, having thoughts. Or if you're having thoughts, you go, "Yeah, those are the thoughts of the yidam." Every thought is we we say released into its own ground. Instead of saying, "Oh yeah, I got to go shopping later today." Oh yes, this is. It just becomes part of Buddha nature. It just dissolves into openness. Nothing is bad. Nothing is repressed. But everything becomes its true nature, which is open, luminous, uh, compassionate dimension. So that's Yidam practice. 
and uh, it does work. And you, if you do yidam practice, you can experience the extraordinary power and consciousness that is uh, represented by using that form, sound, and and uh, mental identification. So it's re-identifying yourself with a sacred principle. That's really all it is. You could do the same thing with, uh, and I think it is done in various other religions. You can identify yourself as a Christian saint. Maybe that's heretical. Uh, a Sufi saint, well, definitely you'll be burnt at the stake. Uh, no, it's like, a, who was yeah. the famous Sufi saint who was going, uh, God is great, God is great, and then he goes, I am great, I am God, and, you know, they burn him at the stake. <laughs> but that, that's what we are, we are recognizing our deity state, absolutely. So um, we are uh, pretty much uh, at the close of our time, and uh, obviously we can um, come back at some point and elaborate on some of these talks because it's been a very rich conversation. But I just really quickly, if uh, uh, you want to just uh, voice over where people can find more about your work, like the websites and things like that. And, and we'll, put, we'll, we'll, we'll attach them. We'll link put them. links on the podcast, but right. for people listening, uh, sure. where do they find out more about this work? The Five Wisdoms with a five, uh, numeral five, thefivewisdoms.com. The Tibetan stuff is at tibetanchocho.com. I'm at uh, com. So those are good starts. I've got a lot of books uh, in process. So a lot of the five element stuff is not in book form yet. But um, nonetheless, we'll keep you entertained until then. I do have a blog on there. So yeah. I do put some interesting things once in a while. Well, we we really appreciate the uh, the wide ranging conversation, and uh, it's been fun. Yeah, too. It's, a, it's a lot of fun, and 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 your uh, passion is uh, very present with this. So you you, 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 you seem you, you seem very empowered, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, yeah, so we look forward to uh, future conversations. So the, uh, yeah. At some point, you. I'm going to write a book called "Men of Essence" and another one called "Women of Essence." So yeah. is that yours or mine? I think it's yours. yours. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, well, so, so thank you so much for joining us on The Mystical it's Positivist. Been, it's been fantastic. Thanks. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Dr. Asa Hershoff about his development of what he calls the five-element energy healing and elemental psychology system. Asa Hershoff has practiced mind-body medicine and Vajrayana concurrently for 40 years. He has developed elemental psychology as an integration of Vajrayana, humanistic psychology, bioenergy medicine, and a pan-global perspective on the five elements. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.